This is Auntie Fa. I am here with our most recent additions to the collective, Nina and John, and I will turn it over to them to give us a quick introduction in just a second. We're going to discuss what brought Nina and John to the collective uh, here on the high desert plains of Wyoming, all the way from the far-flung city of Los Angeles. So, uh, moving uh, from glamour to not-so-glamorous here in Laramie, Wyoming. Uh, hello, I'm John. Um, it was not-so-glamorous in L.A., so... <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm Nina, ex-educator turned, I guess, farm girl. So here we are. <laughs> I would say for us, it was an act of survival. You really feel the compounding of in-stage capitalism in Los Angeles. Um, it is just the amalgamation of everything you love and you hate about society. Um, I've grown up with access to Los Angeles my entire life. I, I loved it growing up. It was really kind of a, like a, a futuristic type of uh, experience when I would get to visit because I grew up in a small Mojave Desert town. But actually living in Los Angeles, um, attending school there, I realized how how parasitic it was. And the longer we seemed to stay there, the more extreme our emotions were, our realities became. So once we did some research and we found Solidarity Collective, we definitely fled. What about you, John? Are you in the same... Yeah. What would you drive here? A Honda Accord? <laughs> Honda Honda Elantra. Yeah, Elantra. Elantra. Okay, that's a small car. Small. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We ran away from L.A. Pretty okay. much. Pretty much. I mean, um, yeah, like Nina, I was born in California. Um, I've traveled to a few different states and lived a few places for a few different years. Seen, you know, different environments, I guess, because certainly the weather here is much different than in L.A. But, yeah, it was just this last year that we were really living like right in LA and it is just hellish like <laughs> once you start to really you know look around and you're not just paying attention to your social group or wherever you happen to live or wherever you work like there's just so much intentional urban planning designed to you know drive out keep away homeless people or anybody who's not just commuting from one place to another and it would be things like seeing a billboard for a different company like on the parking lot of some company you know it's like everything is encroaching on everything else the prices for rent and everything are just way too high it just simply was not sustainable to us like we were just barely keeping our heads above water and uh just not having a good time doing it so <laughs> yeah and, yeah uh, it was that much more painful to reflect on our situation and examine the privilege that we had because we were we were absolutely in a privileged position you know I was familiar with our our uh, landlord so there was grace in that because for like four months we just could not pay rent so um, there was definitely grace in that situation I mean I was able to maintain a full-time job that paid $17 an hour um, like there were there are certain scenarios that just we we would be considered like a success story among friends, despite our absolute struggling. Yeah, we are not a success story. 
So even in Los Angeles, I mean, we're we're arguing for a fifteen dollar minimum wage uh, in the uh, in the nation, but that's that you were making seventeen dollars an hour, and then I assume John had income from his when uh, uh, computer work. I don't know what it barely, was. Barely, barely. Uh-huh. I've never been good at making money, which is not a great quality to have for living in L.A. So. Right, yeah. right, and uh, <laughs> and yeah, it seems that you've got to be kind of a, a hustler and a bustler and a, yeah. get out there and, and take advantage of every opportunity, every little thing, every person, and, yeah, every person that you who, with whom you cross paths, and so. Absolutely. But you weren't making it on the the seventeen dollars an hour oh. wage that we you know, and uh, that's, so that's it's interesting because we we tout this fifteen as a minimum. We need to have that, which obviously. If we're going to have a wage system, we do need to have a better wage for for uh, workers. But you just weren't cutting it at seventeen dollars an hour, even absolutely not. Fifteen dollars an hour was what people needed fifteen years ago. Right. So if, I mean, if we're just keeping up with where we are as a society, people in Los Angeles, at the very least, easily need to make twenty five dollars an hour minimum wage just to survive. I mean, our yeah. rent was nineteen fifty a month for oh, a one bed, one bath. Yeah, it's not like it was a crazy huge place, and it no, was it shoved was... in a parking lot somewhere, like yeah. in the middle of an industrial complex. So it was, right. and again, like, and we were lucky, you know. Yeah. Luckily, our landlord went out of her way to create like a little community garden space, and like there were small attempts to kind of uh, reclaim. Yeah, very performative, but it was at the very least like we had tree-lined sidewalks Mm -hmm. whereas if you know you throw a stone across the freeway you just have nothing it's just bare streets yeah uh, black concrete and it's it's unlivable i mean los angeles is reaching 100 degrees every day Mm. so yeah it just was not a good look for anybody uh but especially for us we have several uh mental illnesses that were just being totally exacerbated by the situation we were in. We were stressed every single day. The anxiety was through the roof. There's this destabilization of person when you recognize that your housing can be taken from you in an instant. Um, our healthcare, John turned, what, 26, 20? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and his healthcare disappeared. So yeah. then we were reliant on my healthcare, which I get through my mom. Like it's everything became very fragile, which is not conducive to a productive human existence so los angeles just has a has an ability to uh really dial in on your fears and turn them up to 11 Mm. how's it been so far you've been here you've got a a taste of wyoming a taste of commune living um it's been a million times better it's been a million times better because of all the things i hate about living in capitalism and especially in a city the main thing that you don't have is just camaraderie with people because definitely society like trains you to be hostile to your fellow citizen, like as your default state, you know, anytime you're driving or even commuting, like when you're walking down the street, you don't look at people, you don't talk to people in stores necessarily. Just being in a space, not only where people are friendly, but there's like this understanding that we're all trying to better ourselves towards not just an okay way of living, but of actually undoing all of the stuff that brought us to this depression in the first place. Like it, it's, it has been so, so nice. Like Nina said, you know, our mental health was really suffering from the way we were being forced to live. And so much of it was like, we would be comforting each other. And it's like, we're doing everything we can, you know, we're doing fine. And we're satisfied with the work that we're doing and with each other. And it's just, not enough because 
I, I hate to say society, but like society will not allow it to be enough. Money we're making was not enough. We just didn't have, you know, enough space to just decompress. Like you've got your room in your apartment and if you're outside, you're in the street or the parking lot. Like that's really what it is. Definitely just the space, the people. I mean, the scheduling, the not feeling smothered all the time. It, it's been a huge blessing for sure. Mm. Yeah, I would have to agree. It, it's been sort of a decompression and an ego death in, a, in an interesting way where the first week we were here, John and I were experiencing mad anxiety of just like, well, what are we supposed to do? Nobody's telling us what we need to be doing right now. There's no like hustle where you need to get up and like hit a hit a quota for your day. Um, and so being able to relax into, well, what do I want to do today? What would I like to contribute to the group? Um, like that is a fantastic process. And it's also forced me to realize all the ways capitalism and like you said, society at large manifests in my own interpretations of self and other because i mean when you choose to join a commune space you know you are actively engaging with people at their best and at their worst and it's just a matter of choosing others over yourself or your own desires which is the complete opposite of city living um, as john mentioned you are trained to be hostile and to view everybody else as threatening your own property um it's very much mm -hmm. a because they're you your competitor it, yeah if you have it i don't have it um that's very much the mindset um specifically in los angeles um so to come to a commune where everybody goes yeah i i bring this to the table choose to interact with it if you'd like that's that's so refreshing mm. um and it feels so much more humanistic John and I certainly get looks. We're already an odd couple. He's a tall, lanky white guy, and I'm a short, stout black woman. So mm. already our pairing is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and we are pretty outspoken, you know? Like, we'll wear our Black History Matters shirts to the Laramie uh, Walmart. And Those are the only shirts we have. We've definitely got some, some stare-downs. We'll wear masks, which will be controversial in Walmart. So um, already we've encountered the sort of placing of us. We are the outsiders, but mm -hmm. that's not a new position for me and while uh we took advantage of the sort of pandemic lapse of employment uh to really like research our escape out of here and really kind of consider the life we'd want to lead um and it took a lot for me to realize as much as i i need my larger black community um I have to start looking at myself in a sort of matriarchal view and recognize that I have the potential to build community. So one of those, like, if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. So I have to be the pioneer uh, to hopefully help others deconstruct their views of communism, of Wyoming, of what it means to, to leave the hustle, because that is definitely just ingrained in black culture at this point, or I should say specifically African-American culture, um, hustling and, you know, making your bottom dollar is huge. And so to kind of leave that identity can be, can be tricky. Um, so John and I have had many discussions and I think at this point, it's just a matter of recognizing we have the chance to build better community. Why not be the people who who take the first step. Mm. So to all my blacks and browns out there, please come to Wyoming. We, we, we got to start taking over. 
leave black women alone. That's my, that's my suggestion. Yeah, I have, I have had to too many times where I've had my own personal space violated by um, all sorts of other people, but it's it's usually specifically white women who will just walk up and touch me like I'm an animal, and there's nothing more offensive or dehumanizing. And um, so I guess my my passing statement on that would be leave black women alone, or else. And I will else. let them. I will let them determine what that or else will be because there are gradations to that scale. Right. So um, you know these hands are rated for everybody. So at this point, if you if you want to violate a black woman, expect consequences. Never talk to cops. Contacted by the police. Stop. Don't talk alone. Even so-called nice cops try to get people to admit violating laws. You are not required to speak with any cop or agent. Call a lawyer instead. The job of cops is to defend existing power structures, not to protect the public. Don't talk to cops. Okay, so it's Derek here, and I'm here with Jordy and Madison and Lilia. And it's been a little while since we've been able to work on the bus. There's just always a, a storm of different things we need to work on around here. But um, we wanted to take a little time tonight to talk about... I guess, Jordy and Madison's adventure in, I guess, learning about bus houses and figuring out that that's something that you wanted to try to do. So if I could, we could just, um, I guess, hear your story about how you came to that decision. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> um, I mean, we definitely decided to do the bus house out of like, you know, just a, a desire to have some sort of housing security we have some money saved and uh pretty much like in researching just or we were just aware that like a bus is a full-size bus as far as living with a family a full-size bus is like the cheapest kind of platform to build a large tiny house that's available and you can get the full-size buses for really pretty cheap so uh we knew a little bit about that because madison at the time that madison and i met uh, years ago, she owned a bus, really, that was, like, partially converted, and they had lived in, so, I don't know, Madison. So, so you've lived in a bus house before? Yeah, not, like, converted into, like, a tiny house thing, but I used to, like, travel around and stuff, and a lot of people... Uh, in the traveling community have old school buses for like housing stuff so I had a short bus before and then uh, like a full-size school bus that I never like got to finish converting ever but, you um, did but I did live in it and like travel around in it a bit and I have a lot of friends that travel around in school buses or like live at pro like different properties and like farms in school buses so yeah okay I guess a question I've been thinking about is like you'll see ads for all these super deluxe um I guess camping RVs especially you know before like Memorial Day and Labor Day mm -hmm. and you know obviously these things can get up to you know, over hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. um, and they're not always specifically meant to be lived in. Like, you know, they're bougie luxury mm -hmm. units. No offense to anyone if you own one, but, <laughs> um, yes. what does, what's the, like the, 
comparison in the cost of converting a bus into a home versus like just buying a unit, a mobile unit that's already um, adapted for some sort of um, domicile? Yeah. Well, we hope to do the full conversion for $12,000 or less. I mean, definitely it won't be less, really. Because we could easily go up to twelve thousand dollars with making you know nicer uh, solar setup or a nicer whatever system, but yeah. So to spend twelve thousand dollars for a full size, like what's pretty much the equivalent of a full size RV, like what they say, like Class A RVs, uh, which are like the huge ones that look like tour buses, which are definitely bigger than our full size school bus, and definitely definitely have more height, which is a major thing. Uh, yeah, a major issue with the school bus is like the ceiling not being very high compared to an RV, which is meant to be at least lived in temporarily. But yeah, so comparing that to a full size, even just a big, even not a class A, but like a big fifth wheel trailer or RV, it would be, yeah, I mean, I imagine definitely over $80,000 or $100,000. Maybe there's ones for 50, uh, over $50,000 for sure. Uh, so yeah, there's a huge cost difference. And then really the quality, like the bus shell and frame is also really solid. So like the bus, the bus just as an empty shell is like very structurally, structurally sound compared to an RV, which is pretty much made out of like fiberglass or thin, uh, really thin sheet metal or whatever, corrugated metal or something like that, which can easily be dent or punched through or... I did have a tree branch go into my old bus window and, like, it was in the window and we started driving and it didn't even really mess up the bus at all. And if that happened in an RV, it would would not be good. tear or crush the side. Oh, yeah, that's something that I haven't really thought of. Um, So I guess a bus is theoretically like more stormproof or weatherproof than an RV as well? Yeah, in I think long term much more. Yeah. Like the I'm not sure about like in the short term I'm sure those are really well sealed and everything. But definitely that's the thing that RVs start to leak. I think that's why airstreams are so popular as old RVs because they're the only ones that were like this design where it was like one piece metal curved over the whole roof so there's no seams to leak on the roof whereas like a lot of rvs and trailers you'll see with tarps you know draped over the tops because they start to leak eventually after not that many years i'm sure from sun and rain and whatever weather so yeah uh just the fact that it's like steel it's like plate steel uh you know sheet steel that the bus has for a skin so um even that is pretty solid compared to anything that an RV would be built out of. And then you can, like with doing the build yourself, you will be using like house insulation or whatever, or even what is more like probably better than house insulation, like rigid foam insulation, but it, which is some type of house insulation, but like, you know, on the higher end or whatever of an insulated house wall. So with that also the additional like insulation like you're saying, RVs aren't necessarily meant to be lived in. So it's like, yeah, the heating systems and the insulation amount in an RV is mostly not meant to live 
like for example in uh, Laramie negative 20 degrees or something like that in the winter so a bus could easily be made much more uh, well insulated and comfortable for that for not very much money at all um, like yeah we could we would do even more insulation than we're going to do and maybe spray foam insulation if we could do a roof raise which I'm like almost six four and the bus ceiling is shorter than is lower than my height by a little bit so it kind of sucks I have to slouch which I can do slouch comfortably and walk comfortably like it doesn't really feel like I'm leaning over or anything like that um I can just kind of like slash down but it would be much nicer to have a roof raise and like the uh, people in videos or whatever will say like, the perceived space is much more with a um, with a roof raise it just makes it feel like an actual indoor room rather than like some little tunnel you know but yeah the bus is the type of thing where you could like leave a bus somewhere as a cabin and then it would be still livable in like many years you know if you just maintain it basically like i mean probably the tires or whatever as long as you had some flat surface i guess for it to settle onto or put blocks under it or whatever like that you know for it to settle onto on a flat surface they had yeah uh you know drainage so it wouldn't wash away but besides that maybe the caulking around the like roof hatches and stuff like that will maybe get bad eventually but um but the thing would last for a long, long time. Yeah, right? I guess that's part of the plot of Into the Wild. Um, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Finding an old abandoned bus way out in the Alaska wilderness. Who exactly. knows how long it had been there? But, yeah, yeah, that's interesting to think about. Yeah, that's the perfect example. Like, I think those were pretty old buses that, yeah, got left out as cabins exactly for, um, yeah, just to be easily made cabins. So it's like, in that way, uh, the bus. The school bus is a nice thing. Doing a roof raise really can be done DIY style, like um, we could do it ourselves. But just for the cost of materials would be like probably multiple, like a couple thousand dollars or over a thousand dollars. And it'd be like a lot of time or at least time like really thinking about it. And we have to take out all the windows and stuff that would be nice really as we're making it like to live in full time for at least a few years or something. But also I'm pretty comfortable with just having the ceiling be, be low, you know, and I, I, I'm making it as tall as possible and then, uh, but it'll be cheap and it'll be fast to build and we'll be able to have a house to live in. That's our own house and uh, yeah, it'll be really awesome. And we can like save money on rent anywhere really that we would go, we'd be able to, you know, rent a spot to park for less than an apartment. And potentially we could live for free on public land or whatever, or yeah. just traveling around yeah, if we had to. Hop around every few weeks or something if you're on public land. But, exactly. Um, something I'm curious about is like, do you know much about the process of like tying down everything before in your house before you would drive it anywhere? Is that a complicated process? Yeah, I'm not totally sure. That's a good question. Definitely, I'll build into the like cabinet design and stuff and ability to like keep the doors closed either you can get special hinges or i'll we'll probably just do like so you can wrap something around the doors to keep them from opening um and having plates fly out or whatever and um yeah so we'll we'll devise things to hold those stuff in place i think the fridges like somehow it's a thing to like strap down a fridge you know or have a special kind of like latch on the door or whatever maybe and then a chimney for a wood stove i know that's a thing i think at least 
that you don't drive with the chimney extended out the like the actual outside chimney out above the roof yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, so i'm pretty sure that it would just involve like taking being able to you know unstrap that like uh stovepipe ducting and put it inside or under the bus or whatever under in the under bus storage that's the major thing that i think of and uh like i'm not sure with a water heater what type of water heater will you use like i'm considering using just like a tank propane water heater from a house that'll be cheap or free to get and uh would work easily for the type of setup we're trying to have but that I don't know if that would be a problem. Mostly those things are like can move around and stuff and like are full, they're just full of water to be sloshing around or whatever. Definitely you'd have to turn off the pilot light and uh, maybe, yeah, maybe empty the water heater, depending. I'm not totally sure, but yeah, that's a possibility. Because I want to do a thing where I can have a water heater that is also heated by a wood stove. It's like my dream that I've really researched a lot into actually more than like most aspects. That's just baby Leia uh, talking. Her way. Input. Yep. Exactly. She's excited for her new home, I'm sure. Yeah, her um, little cubby. Yeah, that's interesting to um, think about the life of a kid living in a, mm. uh, I guess, a bus house from my perspective. I'm sure there's whole communities out there where it seems like a much more regular thing. But yeah. be- something else I was curious about is do you have plans for like how your bathroom's going to work in there? Like, do you plan on like having a compost toilet you'll park over? Yeah, well, we plan on having a composting toilet in a bathroom on the bus. So basically it'll be like a separate like, you know, water closet type like toilet and sink and then a shower separate from that. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a composting toilet that's vented to the outside with a fan that runs all the time. So, you know, presumably, hopefully the hope is that it will not smell and all the snow would be vented out that would be in it anyways and pretty much like it's composting and dries out so fast that it doesn't smell anyways and that's what most people it seems like pretty much most people at least most people that are doing builds and showing videos of them whatever are doing composting toilets for sure because it's the only real like off-grid having a real toilet solution besides things that were i mean you know having like an rv toilet like with black water tank and, and all this type of thing would be like a, i feel like probably pretty big hassle to set up just having to set up an extra tank to drain into is all it is but like a flush toilet and a toilet with a tank which uses water to flush the waste and then you have to the actual flush it like hazardous waste sewage yeah yeah, so most people, I've seen one. The freezing too. Huh? Like freezing. Well, that's stuff, probably like a thing. I don't even know. Yeah. Well, exactly. That's here. another thing. Definitely. Exactly. If you had a black water tank underneath the bus, then I imagine, yeah, you can't have that. I don't know what the deal is with how that works with RVs, but um, yeah, yeah it would freeze or it'd be yeah for sure. So that's an awesome thing. Also, with the composting toilet, you can at least use the toilet, and you have the gray water. So even if it's freezing, like. We'll have our water tank inside, fresh water inside the cabin somewhere, like under the bed or something. So that stays at room temperature. So we don't have to worry about that freezing, like the whole actual big water reserve. And then the gray water tank will be underneath. But I'm thinking of like something like when we're stationary, we just have a drain outside straight away. And it'll be like an insulated drain pipe I'll build into like a gravel pit outside. So that way it can drain the gray water without freezing on the way out in I don't know how low of temperatures, but if it's insulated well, I'm sure 
you could be still using the still using the shower and the water uh you know the sink and everything like that because i know a lot of people end up having to just use like jugs of water like getting uh gallons of water in the winter um to avoid like freezing yeah the gray water tank or whatever Mm-hmm. If you're on the move, definitely that's a problem. But we don't really plan to be like traveling in it. We pretty much just are making it to have a house that we can live in wherever. Um, so we might move it somewhere, which could be far away, but um, probably not very far. Like we'd probably stay in the West. We came from California, Northern California, where also even a lot of just like you know kind of mainstream legitimate people at this point are living in tiny houses is huge there and people doing airbnbs in tiny houses so there are a lot of bus houses and all different types oh yeah of tiny houses uh, ah. yeah tiny houses out there because like rent is insane it must be one of the highest rents in the country and now since covid it's gotten even worse instead of better like a lot of places so San Francisco, it's it's like just north of San Francisco, Sonoma County, but there's fires every year, evacuations every year, which is another reason why we're inclined to want a bus so that we could like, if we live on some rural land somewhere in the west, uh, anywhere in the yeah, west, so that we can be able to evacuate. It's a real thing that we need to think about where we live here in Wyoming as well. Exactly. Um, so... If that happens, um, I'm glad at least someone's got housing taken care of. Or, um, exactly. Just be able to evacuate your whole house. I was kind of curious about, it seems like in your research process, you've had no shortage of um, resources out there to learn about the conversion process as well as, I guess, what life is like in a bus house. Do you get a lot of that? in like video form on youtube or through like forums yeah a variety yeah variety but really mostly uh i just get it from forums yeah forums pretty much there's like schoolie.net i think is a forum um or something like that but it's like when you search it just comes up with the forum as the main uh results so i mostly use the forums to get specific information about specific things and much much more specific and variety of information on the forums but the youtube videos are cool for like inspiration like when we were really hyping ourselves up for this when we lived in an apartment in a downtown laramie in a little apartment that like a cave in the winter time when we just had a little baby and uh so we would watch videos then just to kind of get ourselves like in into the thing and see different examples of stuff and like get the basic basic ideas but at this point we're more on like knowing kind of what we want to do and needing specific information so the forums is better for that mostly it seems videos i think has a lot too i just am not my brain does not work good with video stuff as well as with reading stuff like i can just read through and get information that i need rather than trying to watch whole videos or skip through whole videos so there is also good video information variety i guess probably just as much or at least a lot but I use the forums. What's the next step? So we're just still on t- removing the floor. Um, we removed all the seats. I removed the heaters finally, like figured out how to get the heaters out without losing too much or spilling too much coolant. And still have to figure out what to do with the heater lines, but we're removing the floor, which is like plywood, three quarter inch plywood with like some sort of thick linoleum type mat glued to it. So basically it's like slicing through the mat on the seams, which now we can see because we've gotten a, a few pieces out. 
So now it's just full sheets, uh, four full sheets running the middle of the bus between the wheels. So we just slice down about where the seam is in the plywood pieces and then pry them up from the metal floor. And they're actually nailed, which I found interesting. I didn't, I didn't think would be the case, but yeah, they're just like nail gunned through the metal floor. Um, so we'll pry those out. It's pretty rusty under there, uh, which will be the next step is like, we'll get the plywood floor out and then we will have to clean and remove and completely strip all the rust and also fix some spots where it's even rusted through like around a wheel well which is pretty sucky uh, not ideal a lot of people end up having to even pretty much scrap buses over the amount of rust that's in the floor when they pull up the floor but ours is not going to be that bad and also i'll just buy a welder and fix it if it is that bad and take the time to fix it for cheap which would suck, but I'll do it. So, uh, yeah, we'll do that. That'll be the next step and like eventually paint the floor with Rust-Oleum or some sort of metal enamel paint and then have a fresh canvas to start putting whatever flooring insulation we're going to put in. And then we'll be building from then. So we're still in the beginning stage where like we know what it is we have to do. It's a specific task and we just have to get it done. Uh, and then, yeah, in the few, after that, we'll be like onto the creative, having to plan out actual creative elements. And actual build layout. They just don't want to see the blood. They want that sterile elegance. Let vulgar swallow in the mud. Resentful of their opulence. And if the rabble get rebellious, prop up a right-wing populist whose words will drown us like a flood and teach us not to raise our fist. A bunch of cool, very cool intersecting themes to it. Different capital, um, a new sharing and I think that it's, you know, if there's a, a commie canon uh, of films to see, this is probably one of them. Um, and I noticed that it had themes in common with a couple of labor movies that were made later. One is Norma Ray which is, I can't remember the year that it was made, but Sally Field won an Oscar for it, where she was a female union organizer and she's going through a bunch of conflict with her family about the amount of time she spends organizing. Kind of reminds me of uh, Molly, the Molly McGuire. Um, I, I forget the name, but... Well, there's Mate One, which is the John Sayles film about minor strikes, which is really gritty and realistic and the Molly Maguire's is mm -hmm. another movie and I haven't seen that one um, but it also reminds me of Sorry to Bother You uh, at the part where they're offering like somebody can they'll make someone foreman if they'll break the mm -hmm. strike like that that's like um, uh, the main character in Sorry to Bother You being made a power caller so that he would not organize with the strikers. Do you think that's a testament to the effectiveness of that tactic? If it's the same sort of thing that um, strike breakers, I guess capitalists have been using against organized labor for all this time? The one thing that I, the last thing I wrote as I was watching the film was uh, all of the tactics used by bosses then still used now. Mm -hmm. Like everything we saw in that, you know, in that movie, you know, like 60 years ago, uh, is uh, or 70 years ago is still all those same tactics are still used now and that's definitely one of them but I think that it's like it seems like this was a template for 
labor movies because every labor movie I've seen since then has elements of like this movie in it. So that's pretty fascinating. Um, so everyone involved with this film was either blacklisted by through with McCarthyism in Hollywood because it's 1954 when, mm. it, when it comes out. Everyone was uh, either blacklisted, producers, directors, actors, writers, or was non-professional. Um, and many, if not most, of those non-professional folks were union people. Uh, and um, some of them had been in the original strike that the film was based on. Mm. And... Uh, and then some of them were professional uh, organizers. Um, so this guy, Clinton Jenks, who plays the white organizer that is kind of with them all the time. So he's, he was not a professional actor. Uh, he was a full-time organizer. He really did go from town to town, mine to mine in the Southwest organizing workers to strike on, uh, on behalf of the union. The union, you know, he was a, a, a union agitator, basically. Um, and he was also an organizer of the strike that this movie is based on. Um, and so the film, when it came out, was denounced on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives for being a communist film. And... The film was investigated by the FBI. Like the FBI invaded, invested, investigated the filmmakers, uh, everything, everyone who was in any way involved with the film was investigated by the FBI. During the course of that investigation, Clinton Jenks uh, was found to have falsely attested at one point or another on a form that he was not a communist. And they, you know, they determined that he was a communist and therefore had lied on the form. And so he was convicted. Um, and his conviction was eventually overturned by the Supreme Court in a really famous case that ended up limiting the use of informants because he had been convicted based on the testimony of a paid informant yeah. uh, who had infiltrated the... Uh, infiltrated the, the, the unions and, and, and other political activities. So, so he's an interesting character in it. Um, Rosara Revueltes Sanchez, uh, who was the narrator and the lead uh, actor in the film, um, was a Mexican filmmaker of many, many films that were openly and explicitly feminist and also was the first filmmaker to create, make films uh, featuring uh, lesbian relationships. Um, and so, uh, and then, you know, tons of films about women's rights. She was arrested during the making of the, this film, during the filming of this film by immigration. And she was deported to Mexico during the, uh, the, um, the uh, making of the film, it changed some of the decisions they had to make about making the film. They used a double 
for her when they could, you know, when they needed, like, needed to have her there, but not, like, immediately, you know, kind of at the center of attention. Um, so, so that happened during that time. She, so she later moved to East Germany to work with Bertolt Brecht and his theater company in East Germany. After he was... After he went back... After he went back to East Germany. Yeah. Yeah. And he had been... He had appeared before the House on American Activities Committee as well. He was not deported back, um, is my understanding. He ended up going back because he couldn't get any... He could not stir up any interest in, in his work in the United States... But uh, but in but his work was was successful in many other uh, in many other countries and the the government of East Germany basically let him set up his uh, you know his his theater company for the last few years of his life uh, which included uh, Rosara Revueltas uh, Sanchez uh, which it's mind blowing to me like that connection is mind blowing because I've been so. Uh, into I've taken such a deep dive into Brecht, especially lately. I've been kind of on a, a Brecht kick. Um, let's see. Uh, I guess that's all the facts that I have. Um, but it's just a, it's just such a remarkable film. Uh, so militant, um, and so like realist. It's got this realist aesthetic to it. Um, it's bilingual. Um, it, uh, has this, the dialogue is all very argumentative about arguments about your organizing. So it's full of these lessons, um, which if, uh, you know, if the, if the filmmakers were, you know, as, as radical as they, you know, as they apparently were, um, you know, that's like a method of communist theater as well is that you have all these political arguments going on, you know, as part of the, as part of the dialogue and stuff. So it just blew me away. I, I wanted us to watch it tonight. I didn't know if it was going to seem, you know, kind of quaint and, you know, sort of corny and stuff. And like, there were certainly a few little bits, uh, you know, moments of that, but like the majority of the time I was just going, this is, you know, this is absolutely 100% topical. Everything about this film is topical. And also kind of says, there's no, if you were on the left in 1954 and you were, a, you know, not a good person, if you were a sexist or racist person, there's no excuse because all of those issues were already, had already been dealt with by, uh, you know, people who were doing actual organizing. And we, and those were all the arguments that kind of came out in the film. So it was, uh, it just, it's, I just feel like it's, a, it's quite a piece of work uh, for 1954. Yeah, I was very impressed with seeing the um, themes of um, intersectional solidarity when I wouldn't have expected um, such themes to be explored in a large scale motion picture form this early on in history. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously they had to kind of go underground right. to do it, but absolutely, like, I feel like all of those kind of tensions and struggles that go on in organizing, so, 
you know, um, Anglo workers versus Mexican workers, and also like the dilemmas people face when they're organizing, take care of your family versus go on strike. Uh, and, um, uh, religion and kind of the role that religion plays in, in sort of, in this case, you know, institutional religion kind of trying to discourage and disempower people. I really like the, um, like in the discussion of the, of, of the union, um, and sort of the Anglo workers, uh, and the, um, Latinx workers, like, the Ramon was like, you like do all the thinking and don't let us do any of that. Like, and then the same thing plays out with the, with the women, like you're there, the, the men are expected to do all the thinking and the work and the women are just supposed to, um, see, I thought that really encapsulated a lot. Um, definitely agree. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and sort of along those lines, there was one scene that I particularly liked where, um, I can't remember what was the, Esperanza, mm -hmm. and they were talking, and she was basically saying, like, they're superior to you, and then you need to feel superior to me. Who do I feel superior to? Mm -hmm. And that is, like, sort of the more the psychological dynamic of it. Right, yeah. but it brings to mind, like, Fanon. Uh, and other theorists about, you know, that that's sort of how oppression works. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so remarkable. Um, and, uh, and, and when confronted with, uh, you know, his fellow worker saying, you, you don't take us seriously, you don't listen to us, the Clinton Jenks character, perhaps as a role model mm. for activists, says... You're right. I gotta mm -hmm. rethink this. I'm gonna yeah. pull back. I'm gonna back off and sit down and mm -hmm. and listen and rethink. Um, you know, clearly, you know, intended to to sort of be a a moral or a lesson of the film. Yeah, it was very like it felt very dialogical, but also in an effective way. Um, it like not not ever just like beating you over the head with it, but always creating this tension of, of like, these are realistic positions that people have and they're playing out. Um, yeah. Versus. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and Will Gear, of course, was the kind of most famous of the blacklisted actors. He was an open communist uh, and a pretty open uh, gay actor um, and had no work basically during that the entire kind of blacklisted period uh, and of course we all know him as Grandpa Walton on the Waltons uh, but it's interesting that that's kind of where he landed I feel like some of the other folks involved in the Waltons as a program were also um, you know political politically progressive uh, people um, but, uh, but yeah, he was, there was a time when he was sort of the, the face of blacklisted Hollywood, uh, cause he had a great deal of, um, 
marketability and potential before he was a black became a blacklisted actor. Mm. Uh, and the blacklist was real, man. That's uh, rough. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I I was sort of blacklisted a little bit. It's so intense. It's definitely, uh, yeah. it's For definitely real, reason, and, yeah. and uh, yeah, uh, I guess yeah. That's about, that's about it. I was gonna say that. Um, well, I said I did say that. Never mind. Just about the tactics being used. You know, I mean, it's definitely like a textbook. You know, it's sort of like a. You know, you're watching this and this is what is going to happen, you know, when you... When I don't you know if I saw as much of the... So, another... I guess so, sometimes they do find people who are, like, willing to splinter off and then sort of um, pull down the people in the union, pull down the union itself um, by, by sort of, like, sabotaging things in a... I mean, there were definitely sort of people on the periphery that were willing to talk to the cops. Yeah. And willing to, you know, and I feel like the whole no, thing like, with the, nobody within really. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't see like it was just kind of surprising. moles or you know, like because that is so that is a tactic. Maybe mm-hmm. that wasn't so. COINTELPRO hadn't come out. The FBI trial where the Socialist Workers Party took the FBI to court and won had not happened. That all happened in the 80s, although they were involved in those tactics at the time. And one of the things they would do is they would send people into strikes and send people into radical organizations. And these, you know, people would say, you know, hey, we should, uh, you know, let's go burn down that building. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's, yeah. uh, you know what, let's, um, let's get a bomb. Yeah, let's, let's get a bomb. Let's make a bomb. Let's go burn down that building. Oh, and, uh, you know, let's do these other sort of incidental illegal things like drugs and stuff like that. Too. Yeah. Just to like inundate the, or, you know, whatever yeah. organization with criminal activity, uh-huh. um, so that there would be pretexts for arrested people and breaking the strikes. And that didn't, that did not happen in this film, but there were shades of that, like, mm. like with the the scab, um, that incident with the scabs. That was clearly a setup, right? Well, and then when they were sort of accusing Ramon of being violent, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and they were also uh, sowing the rumor that the women were all sleeping with one of the strike organizers uh, to make you know to sow discontent dis- discontent mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the. The different like husbands, which yeah. I mean, that's what they did. You know, they did that to the Black Panthers. Yeah. Um, oh. They wrote letters, fake letters, saying I saw so and so with so and so, and you know, like all kinds of things like that. They and then with the anti-war movement, they would write letters to to people's parents if they were in college, uh, on the theory that um, the parents would then stop funding the kids' college education. They would like fabricate. They would fabricate like their lies about what the kids are doing, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. They found um, it was something like nine million pages of evidence, memoranda, uh, you know, uh, fake things, uh, different things like that. um, uh, That 
and had the, you know, and that the FBI had files on people who were even nominally involved in labor or other kinds of kinds of organizing. Um, but that way, that was not obvious in 1954. Uh, I think that the first lawsuit happened in the late 70s and lasted about 10 years. Um, and then COINTELPRO was somewhat related to that too. And those revelations didn't come out until like the 70s or 80s. A realization that I had is, um, so it made me think about how Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and their childish, um, I guess, you know, fascination of um, funneling billions of dollars into their um, space tours and programs for their own amusement, how that's such like a, a postmodern version of, I guess, the trope that, the realistic trope that this movie played into with them. Um, the president of the company being a big um, Africa safari hunter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, the same thing. that's still food. like, yeah, like yeah. these people still go on safari yeah, that's and not still a, kill elephants yeah, that's not and rhinos thing. and stuff like that. Although it will be soon. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I thought, I mean, that was one of many moments in the film where I was like, you know, this could have been made like a lot of this could have been made today. Yeah, you could have easily seen the same thing in Sorry to Bother You. Yeah. The boss being a, yeah, a exactly. safari hunter. Well, he, you know, I mean, he was kind of a, you know, the, the boss in Sorry, or the, the big CEO guy, Steve Lift is the character's name in yeah. Sorry to Bother You. He was kind of like a world traveler adventurer, you know, kind of thing, along with everything else that he supposedly did. I mean, I feel like, I don't know if, if Boots saw this film, but honestly, if you ask him, if you asked Boots Riley on Twitter whether he had seen this film, he would probably answer you. He's pretty cool on Twitter <laughs> um, because the parallels are pretty striking in it. I do like how that that like Safari Hunter thing plays into the like the very explicit rift between Anglos and, um, like, people of Mexican descent. Like, this is all a super colonial, like, it's not just the bosses, it's also colonial capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the striking depth mm. of the movie like that in those ways. Seeing the way that um, how so many things are the same um, back in the 50s and I guess some things that you'll hear earlier in the 1910s and how you'll see these same things playing out today, I guess it um, highlights the, the pragmatic importance of, you know, learning and studying history as far as organizing. They just don't want to see the blood. They want that sterile elegance. Let vulgar swallow in the mud, resentful of their opulence. And if the rabble get rebellious, prop up a right-wing populist whose words will drown us like a flood and teach us not to raise our fist. If you like this content, 
and want to help us keep making it available for free, please become a subscriber to Solidarity House at patreon.com slash solidarity house. That's patreon.com slash solidarity house. You'll also get a bunch of bonus material and that kind of stuff. We really appreciate your support. They want that sterile elegance, let vulgars wallow in the mud, resentful of their opulence. And if the rabble get rebellious, prop up a right wing populist whose words will drown us like a flood and teach us not to raise our kids.